there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome to Giant. Football stories that matter, told by the people who were there. A Spotify original in association with Mundial. Uh, my name is Jeff Agus, and I played for DC United. You know, the first game, to Eric's point and scoring that goal, I had, a, I had a hand in, and I think it contributed to saving this league. Yes, there you go. In fact, I forgot about this. I was yes. hoping you'd bring it up right Oh, of course. Everybody brings it up. So so I say this with tongue in cheek that, that, you know, it was a 0 0 game until the last few minutes when Eric went by me and then scored the goal. So I think the way I see it, I single handedly saved Major League Soccer from folding just because we had a 0 0 game. Ronaldo. Ronaldo on the left foot, keeping it on the right now, looking for the shot. It's April 6, 1996 and the San Jose Clash are hosting DC United in the first game of Major League Soccer. It's been a nervy game, and with 88 minutes on the clock, a lot of people invested are getting very, very tense. When Eric did score, it was a little bit, to be honest with you, like a relief, like, oh, thank goodness it didn't end 0-0. Thank goodness it didn't go into a shootout. This is Mike Burns. Mike played for the New England Revolution in that debut season, and I'm sure you'll agree he's got the greatest accent ever committed to tape. It probably would have been better if it was someone else that scored it, but we'll have to live with him for the rest of our lives. Mike's joking. Him and Eric are mates. They played together for years on youth teams and the national team. Here's the man himself, Eric Wijnaldum. The story behind the actual goal is we had preseason in late January and February in San Diego, and I played against Jeff Causey. And I got the ball in a similar spot, and I tried to get a little tricky with it. I threw my hip, and I tried to go near post. I hit the side netting, and it wasn't a goal. I remember thinking that in the moment where I got the ball, once I got past Jeff, is that he's gonna think I'm going for the near post. The reality is, guys, is I was shooting low. <laughs> and it went high, and it looks great now. You watch it, and you say, oh, I put that in the upper corner. And as soon as I hit it, I thought, oh my God, I missed. But then when I saw the flight of the ball, and I realized that Jeff had frozen. Well, Jeff Cossey could not stop Eric Winaldo this time. You can sense it coming. As Winaldo, we mentioned, he has that extra gear of speed. Thank God Eric Winalda had that moment for us to say, there was a winner, you're going home, the home team won, it was a beautiful goal, and we were well on our way. This is Alexi Lalas, him of the big hair, big beard, and big headers, who became an icon at the 1994 World Cup. Alexi's very glad Eric scored. And I often think of, had it finished 0-0, would things have been different? Probably not, but it was a hell of a lot better and a hell of a lot easier having to go out of that game knowing, all right, there was a winner and there was a goal and we're on our way. Jeff Agus is now vice president of competition at Major League Soccer. And although he got skinned for that opening goal, he's also very glad Eric scored. It was sort of the dream that every American player wanted, you know, being able to have a, your own league in your own country. Uh, and, and, you know, we had no idea that 24 years later, I'd be sitting in an office here with 24 teams going up to 30 
that we'd be sitting here having this conversation about what happened in, in 1996. As Jeff says, the MLS is thriving. Soccer-specific stadiums are being built all across the country. New teams are being announced. Atlanta United averaged over 50,000 last season and sold Miguel Almiron to Newcastle for 21 million pounds. But we wanted to go right back to the start. And I'm going to have to say soccer a lot. Get used to it. So we travel from coast to coast and a few places in between to talk to the players, administrators and fans to bring you the true story of 1996 and all that. This is the birth of Major League Soccer. Hang on to your hats. Dignity Health Sports Park in Carson City, the home of LA Galaxy. Not only are they one of the founding teams, they're also the most successful. On match days, it's a riot of colour and noise, and it's an inclusive atmosphere. You can get two pint cans of lager and have a wander around, or you can pile in behind the goal and get amongst it. We did both. We also went to a tailgate party with the Angel City Brigade, one of the fan groups. And they were handing out free beer, excited to tell us about what they do and why they do it. Yeah, well, my name is uh, Angel Figueroa. I'm one of the leadership members here of ACB. Um, one of many Galaxy fans here that have been supporting the team since the early days. You know, the original team, Derek Percentile. The first game right after the World Cup, I still remember the hype. Everyone's excited, like, damn, we have a professional soccer team here in L.A. Now, back then, I didn't know about Real Madrid. I didn't know about Barcelona. That's the first team I ever met in my life. Well, I knew Kobe Jones. As a matter of fact, I knew, so I knew Cienfuegos and Kobe Jones, and that was it. Kobe Jones, he was like the go-to guy. He was a poster guy. You see him everywhere. You ask anyone else, LA is, is soccer city. USA, I mean, that first game in, in the Rose Bowl, was the catalyst to, to the Galaxy is now. Uh, my name is Osman Pena, but uh, they call me Mingo. That's a family name. It's my dad's name, it's my son's name too. Growing up, I used to get into a lot of trouble, you know, and they told me I need to find something that, where I can just express my anger. And I found these guys right here. A lot of us went to, because the Galaxy signed Mauricio Cienfuegos, and my, my family's from El Salvador. He's considered one of the, the pioneers of the LA Galaxy, a, a legend, you know, if you would say. He was our first number 10, and this is where his career actually took a flight. People, someone from El Salvador that represents me, my family, you know what I mean? And he's still with the organization, just tells you a lot that the Galaxy is just, it's more than just 90 minutes. It's a lifelong experience, you know? And then 
That's one of the things I, I want to teach my kids. My my son, the baby, his, he was six months old, and I took him to Chicago to his first away game. Fucking snowing, bro. 30 degrees, I put Vaseline on his cheeks. Let's go, boy. You know what I mean? It's just... Because if, if I didn't take him, then who is? Last season, Galaxy averaged 24,000. But back in 1996, they played their home fixtures at the Rose Bowl. It has a capacity of 92,000. And nobody had a clue how many fans they would get for their first game. Here's match day announcer Joe Totino. And back then, Major League Soccer decided in these large facilities that they were going to tarp most of the stadium and show only the seats that they planned on selling. And for that evening, they planned on selling some 30,000 seats. Well, as the night progresses, you're seeing people start to pull tarps off the seats. And I'm looking and I'm wondering why this is. And, and as we got closer and closer to kickoff, not only were people pulling tarps off the seats, the fans were helping the stadium people pull the tarps off the seats. And at the end, instead of 30,000 people, we had over 69,000 people in the building. Uh, my name is Kobe Jones. Uh, I am currently a uh, retired... Alexi Lalas wasn't the only domestic breakout star from the 1994 World Cup. With his distinctive dreadlocks, all-action playing style, and eye for a spectacular goal, Kobe Jones became a household name and got a move to the Premier League. But by 1996, he was back home in California and playing for the Galaxy. I still remember to this day coming around that first bend at the Rose Bowl and we looked out and everyone was just like, this is gonna be a little bit more than 10,000. <laughs> you know, because it was a sea of cars and just all the fans, you know, just like running up to the bus and like hitting the bus at times. And we we're like, this is crazy. It is, this is a madhouse. There is, you know, beyond what we expected. The media had been queuing up to say that soccer simply would not work. 23 years later, Kobe goes wide-eyed telling us how exciting and extraordinary it all was. I gotta tell you, because this is an important point that people don't know about that first game. But people don't know is when that game was over, when that final whistle blew, there were still people in line on the freeway with traffic trying to get into the stadium when the final whistle blew. I mean, that that's how... I mean, amazing it was, how unprepared they were as far as their expectations. That was a pinnacle moment for MLS and I think for soccer in Los Angeles because it showed that soccer it was a sport that people wanted and were thirsting for in the United States and especially in Los Angeles. Kobe Jones is a US Hall of Famer and a Galaxy legend. 164 caps, over 300 games for the Galaxy won two leagues, two US Open Cups, and a CONCACAF Champions League. When you take all that into account, it was fitting that. We'll let him tell you. You know, scoring the first goal in LA Galaxy history, because, you, you know, you, ha you have issues in soccer, you have issues in the game, you know, you pluses and minuses and stuff, but no one could ever take away that moment, you know, whenever they talk about the LA Galaxy, you know, and the first goal scored. Hundred years from now, my name will be there. You know, they can't can't take that away from it. As part of the bid for the 1994 World Cup, the one of Diana Ross and that penalty, and Robbie Baggio and his tears, the U.S. Soccer Federation had agreed to start a league. It was meant to start in 1995. There are a thousand reasons why it didn't, from finances to logistics 
and all of the small but vitally important stuff you have to worry about when launching a new league. We were doing everything at the same time, so that's jerseys and team names and coaches and physios and referees and is the field going to be marked and what are the rules of the shootout and television. So that was a big issue, trying to get all those pieces fitting at the same time. This is Sunil Galati, and we're sat in his office at Columbia University. Sunil is a former president of the US Soccer Federation. He sat on the FIFA Council, and in 1996, he was the deputy commissioner of MLS. One of his main roles was player recruitment. The other key piece for us was getting some of the stars of the US national team from the World Cup back. And that meant getting them back from England or Mexico, whatever it might be. As Sunil says, the players were scattered all over the world, but they were all ready to come home to start the new league. Here's Alexi Lalas. I was playing in Syria at the time. Uh, it was the biggest, most popular, most money, most prestigious type of league in the world. And yet my thoughts and sights were that it was a temporary stay in that I knew that Major League Soccer was scheduled to come online in 96, and there was something inside me and a lot of us that said this was not only something that we wanted to do, but almost a responsibility to come back. And uh, I had every intention when MLS started in 96 of finishing my time in Italy uh, and, and coming back. So this was, was La Cosa Nostra, it was our thing. It was a, a labor of love, and I think just a lot of us looked at it as this was a responsibility to our sport and maybe in a certain sense to uh, you know, our history and our, and our culture and our country to, be, to come back and to help it succeed. I'll never forget getting on the plane in Italy, flying back, to start in Major League Soccer. It's one of the proudest moments of my life, and to this day, I will never forget it. Eric Winalda loved playing in Europe, but he went to see his coach. It was time for him to come home. And I said, come on, help me get home. It's too much of a big responsibility that I have. It's different than this country. It's the birth of a league in my own country. I have to be a part of it. All things considered, it's a good job they did get Eric home, and Jeff A. Goose agrees. It was uh, critically important to, to the success of the league that the American players who grew up here and uh, were playing abroad came back and put a stake in the ground and put their arms around the league and said, this is my league and I'm going to do whatever I can to move this forward. The majority of U.S. players who came back were marquee players. Each team was given four. And in what turned out to be a masterstroke, Sunil Galati tells us that the other marquee players were signed to appeal to a huge section of existing football fans in the US. The Hispanic part of it, the Hispanic audience and attacking soccer were important criteria. So who are the guys we went and got? Guys that weren't necessarily in their very best day or had some knock along the way. So we went and got Marco Echeverri, who had been the most important Bolivian player in history. We went and got Jorge Campos, one of the most popular Mexican players in history. And he was still in the prime of his career, still in the national team. We went and got a guy named Mauricio Cienfuegos, who was very inexpensive, but probably sold more tickets in LA than anybody else did all the way up to David Beckham. Soy Jorge Campos, I'm Jorge Campos from Mexico. You know who Jorge Campos is, don't you? Star of the 94 World Cup. My position is, I don't remember, play goalie and forward. <laughs> played in goal and up front, designed his own Larry and iconic kits. We post them on Instagram at all times. On an overcast day in LA, we met Jorge in the car park of a driving range and did the interview in the back of his motor. Honestly, it's one of the greatest things that's ever happened in my life. How did this happen? Sunil, Sunil called me and he asked me if I want to play in the new, the new league in the United States. They would try to do something different. Uh, 
they say they were thinking to play here in Galaxy, in LA. A lot of Mexicans, a lot, a lot of Mexicans. I say, wow. And you say, okay. It wasn't only Mexicans in the crowd. Jorge got a hell of a surprise as they lined up for kickoff. Something happened with, with Cienfuegos. I don't know if he told you the story. People told me, oh, Campos, you say you want to play it. A lot of Mexicans come to buy tickets. It's a lot of people coming for you. Oh, thank you. So, Cienfuegos, everybody knows Cienfuegos want to play. So, we're in the line, so, Jorge Campos. The stadium was crazy. And I tell, hey, Cien, a lot of Mexicans. Hey, Mexico, Mexico. <laughs> it's funny. When I say, uh, from Salvador, Mauricio Cien. Oh, my gosh. Hey, I thought it's only Mexicans. It's when I, I remember, say, Cien, you are a hero in Salvador. More, the Salvador, more than Mexicans. I can't believe it. So, hey, loco, he called me, loco, you hear? Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 I thought, I thought the, the people come to see me. No, they come, went to see Cien. Oh, my God. Of course, this wasn't the first time that foreign superstars had turned up in the US to play soccer. We'll let Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated tell you about a key decision in the formation of the league. Grant is the preeminent voice of US soccer. He's also a lovely fella. So a lot of what went behind the start of MLS, the thinking behind it was they wanted desperately to avoid the mistakes that the NASL made after being pretty popular in the US in the late 70s and getting a lot of big names to come over and play in the US. The problem was that the New York Cosmos, which had Pele and Beckenbauer and Canalia and all these guys, and, you know, won a lot of the trophies in the history of the league, they caused other teams as they expanded, overexpanded, to basically go bankrupt in trying to compete with the New York Cosmos. And so the league folds. And so when MLS is getting started, the idea was to start as a single entity league in which it's basically soccer socialism. So the idea is, is that all the owners are in business together and prevents them from competing against each other to sign players. I've always been fascinated by this. The US in soccer terms is a socialist country and you know, we think of socialism as being this Western European, European thing, and yet that's the Wild West in soccer. We all love a Western, don't we? Sunday afternoons on the sofa with your nan, bit of John Wayne on the telly. And it was like the Wild West. They might have had players, they might have had teams, but without the right people driving the business side and crucially fronting the money to own the clubs, there would have been no league. It's worth mentioning here that we simply couldn't speak to everyone we wanted to. Alan Rothenberg was the president of the US Soccer Federation, and without him, no MLS. Ditto Doug Logan, ditto Marla Messing, and countless others. We could have done an hour on the ins and outs of MLS ownership alone. It's complicated, and in the first season, to ensure that the league could go ahead, owners own multiple clubs. The guys who were involved, we were very excited. We don't, I don't think any of us involved actually really understood the economics behind it and the fact that the people who were involved, the, you know, Philip Anschutz, Robert Kraft, all those people who were those first people, Lamar Hunt. This is Greg Lalas, Alexi's brother and now the VP of content at the MLS. I don't think we understood what their legacy was as business people, as sports owners, all that kind of stuff. So 
for us, it was just like, okay, this is probably just the next little league that might last a couple of years. Here's Grant Wall again. Lamar Hunt is uh, a fascinating individual, a guy who is in the Hall of Fame in the U.S. of different, several different sports. So not just soccer, but also football, because he owns, owned the Kansas City Chiefs and had a huge role in the start of American football in the United States. He actually came up with the name Super Bowl himself, which is just one of a million things that he did. And, uh, you know, if MLS was going to get off the ground, Lamar Hunt was going to be involved. At one point, Lamar Hunt owned three franchises. Later, in 2002, Phil Anschutz owned six. So Anschutz wasn't necessarily a soccer guy by any means, but he had seen the 94 World Cup. He was actually very taken, not just with the U.S. team at that World Cup, but there was a specific moment when Marcelo Balboa, the defender for the U.S., nearly scored a goal against Colombia with a bicycle kick. Missed by maybe 10 inches. And Phil Anschutz not only wanted to start a team in Colorado where he lived in Denver, but he had a stipulation. I I want Balboa, the guy who made that bicycle kick. Right then. There's 10 teams split into Eastern and Western conferences and a load of marquee players ready to get cracking. But these teams needed entire squads. So they used two things that are inextricably linked to sports in the US, a combine and a draft. Here's Sunil Galati. Then you had the draft, and what we had for the draft was very different than other drafts and combines, because it was the first year of the league, which meant the main vehicle for teams to get spots filled up was through this draft. So think of a situation where you've got a kind of an open tryout, several hundred players, put them all on teams, 10 or 12 coaches or 20 coaches or assistants, whatever, um, looking at this and, and identifying players and saying, okay, I'll take them after a three-day trial. We had Renus Mickles as an advisor to us. And I remember meeting with our coaches who were helping us identify players, as well as the team coaches. And we have a meeting and, and you know, Renus was in the room. He said, you know, I feel like I've been dropped in from Mars into this setup of what I'm looking at. But he also said, you know, it's a fascinating thing for him, right, to be part of this whole thing. So that's the inventor of total football in a field in California. Not sure John Wayne ever did that. Greg Lalas played at the Combine and was draft pick number 157 out of 160. So in fact, when I got drafted, I was teaching a class and the loudspeaker in the class said, "Uh, Mr. Lalas, can you please come to the principal's office? And I was like, didn't know what that was all about. So I literally said, excuse me guys, I'll be right back. Went down to the principal's office and they said, "Uh, Mr. Lalas, you have a phone call. Picked up the phone, it was my brother. He said, so you got drafted. I was like, no. He's like, yeah, guess where you're going? And I started listing the cities I wanted to go to, and I think I went through like five cities. And I was finally, will you just tell me? You're going to Tampa. Okay, good. So uh, that, was, uh, that was how I got drafted. <laughs> if there are two things that everyone mentions about that season, it's the countdown clock and the shootouts that replace penalties. Opinion was, and still is, split. Here's Eric Winalda. You know, some of the original ideas were a little scary because it was this, the timing of the season, which still is today, odd. Um, the games, the clock, shootouts, there was all this crazy stuff. It was so odd because when the NASL was here, it was viewed as a foreign game. And I think that's what was the thinking behind some of the, the executives who thought, we've got to put our own stamp on this. How do we make it more exciting or how do we do it differently? 
But the purists were, were saying, what the hell is this? So Neil was part of the group who had to decide on what changes would be made. And we had a whole bunch of people, coaches, journalists, and how do we make the game better in the US uh, in general terms? And the notion being that the FIFA guys you know, would say, okay, it's crazy Americans, we're not gonna bother too much with them, we're kind of below the radar. We didn't want games ending in draws. We didn't think American fans really wanted games ending in draws, and we thought it was better than penalties. In a nutshell, the two big things that we had that were different were shootout and the clock. Right? I'm sorry. I am just not accepting that anyone's viewing pleasure is affected by whether the friggin' clock reads up or down from 0 to 45 or 45 to 0. I think it's insanity. Jeff Eggers, the first kicker, flipping it up into the air. The left-footed shot skips through and into the goal. Greg Lalas was a fan. I love the shootouts. They were great. It was a little bit fairer for the goalkeeper, I think. There was a little bit more excitement. You had this build-up, and it gave you so many more options about how the striker would approach this whole thing. When you think about a penalty now, it's very simple, right? You're, you might do the slow stutter step. You might bash it. You might try to aim it to the corner. Five yards away from victory. The one's our second touch. Chips it past Kaji But when you have 35 yards, and only five seconds, you have to do all these calculations in your head about how do I set it up? Do I go straight at the goalkeeper? Do I create an angle for myself? Do I try to go really fast and dribble the goalkeeper? Do I do what one person did uh, who would run up and he'd flick it up in the air and smash a volley as hard as he could from about 18 yards out, right? Or, and then if you're a goalkeeper, you're like, do I sit back? Do I wait? Do I close down? If I go too fast, you're just gonna chip me. We've actually thought about this a lot and reckon shootouts are probably better than penalties. In general, there was a lot of madness going on, but the players were hell-bent on making a success of it. Back to Alexi. I've done all the proverbial supermarket appearances and, you know, and clinics and, and all that kind of stuff, but I never, I never thought it was a hassle. I mean, I, I was raised and steeped in this environment and this culture where you were the pioneer. You were the, um, the evangelist. This was our religion, and we wanted to spread that gospel to everybody and everything that we did. And it was sometimes by one person at a time, and sometimes it was taking a picture and signing an autograph at a local supermarket. I never resented it. It never bothered me. I, rec I just thought this, this is what my job is. I, I don't have to do this job. I'm fortunate and privileged to be able to do this job. And that's how we built our, you know, our image as a team, as a sport, and individually. You know, you talk to Kobe, myself, that's what we did. We, we, we broke our ass getting out there into the community. Here's Winona. He can score, he can also cross. Gets into the box, but national teammate Alexei Alalis stops the charge. It'll be a throw in for the West. Here's Eric again. We interviewed him in a hotel in Carson City. We couldn't get the lights to work. Nobody could. Eric Wijnaldum was at one time the US leading scorer, and he will always tell you exactly what he thinks. There was so many things to overcome. You had the team in Columbus that was playing on a 58-yard wide field. Let's just try to think about that for a second. Our field was, I think, close to 60, which probably meant we had a 16-yard box, not an 18-yard box, but just there were so many little things that made the league so subpar. In its, in its infant stages. Ronaldo, many consider him to be the closest thing the United States has ever come to a world-class striker or goal scorer. The main thing that comes across with Eric is how much he cares about the game, or all levels. He's a real football tragic, 
like all of us. As we tease and we make fun of it, we still are very proud of the, uh, the fact of where it is today. But it still had an excitement value. It had an entertainment value that I thought, um, I thought it, it, it made enough waves that people could say, all right, this is real. This isn't just some silly league. That this, this actually looked pretty good. Eric's right. There were loads of good things happening. The legendary Carlos Valderrama was also one of the marquee signings. And three weeks after resigning from his teaching job, Greg Lalas was sharing a dressing room with the legendary Colombian. I just remember when he walked into the locker room, because I was already in the locker room, and this is actually in a newspaper somewhere, because somebody interviewed me about him back then. And, and they said, well, what do you think of him? And I was just an idiot. So I said something like, I was curious what kind of underwear he wore. Was it tidy whities or was it boxers, right? Turns out he wore tidy whities and I think they were purple. And I was like, perfect, right? And he, he just sort of strutted in. He was incredibly um, unassuming. He walked up, shook everyone's hand. I don't know about you, but I'm very glad I know what color underwear Carlos Valderrama knocks about him. ESPN were broadcasting a game every week and Greg and his teammates went out to watch one of the early games. A local restaurant in Tampa had put aside a room for us all to go to. We all went over there and the sense of excitement and anticipation that a soccer game was going to be on national television, our league, players we knew, and we're sitting there waiting for this to happen. We all get there early, we're very excited. And there was, I think, like a second round women's tennis match, Indian Wells or something like that, that was on beforehand. And these two players were amazing and really going at each other. And <laughs> they wouldn't get off. And our game just kept getting delayed. So I think that our big debut on ESPN for this weekly match on TV, we, they didn't show up until halftime. And the best part about it was we were all really, really disappointed, but as soon as the game came on, we all cheered. Right? That our game was on television. It was such an amazing moment of like, we've made it to an extent. They might not have made it yet, but they were making it. Of course there were problems, but the stats, the stats were good. Over the 160 games, there were 537 goals. The league reached the million fan mark in June, halfway through the season and one month ahead of schedule. Galaxy averaged 28,000. And even if that was only a third of the capacity of the Rose Bowl, it was still plenty more than envisaged. The conference structure ran like this. Each team played 32 games, 16 against the other four teams in their conference and 16 against the teams from the other conference. In the East, the Mutiny played DC United in the finals, while in the West it was LAV, the Kansas City Wiz. Mike Burns tells us that was a fair reflection of the season. For me, there were three teams that were clearly better than the other seven, right? And it was Tampa Bay, it was the Galaxy, and it was DC United. I think all three of those teams had, in their own ways, they were exciting teams. They had, they had good players, um, good attacking players that were exciting to watch, whether it was Cienfuegos and Kobe, or whether it was Ralston and Lasseter, or Moreno and Echeverri. So they all had different ways to beat you, but all, all three of those teams, every time we played them, you knew they were capable of scoring a lot of goals. Although they were stacked with talent and were the best team statistically and featuring the MVP in Valderrama, the Tampa Bay Mutiny got hammered 6-2 on aggregate by DC United. Galaxy needed a shootout to beat the Wiz. The Galaxy were brilliant. They reeled off a 12-game winning streak early on. On the other hand, DC United started terribly 
but grew and grew under the influence of Bruce Arena, who went on to become perhaps the greatest coach of his generation in the US. Here's Grant Wall. Bruce Arena is a, a very impressive coach. He was really good at managing players, at building a team. He wasn't a tactical genius at all, but he, he had his teams ready to play and play well together. You know, it was something that other teams just didn't have as much. And here's Jeff Agus, who saw it firsthand. Well, we were 0-4 in the first four games. We wound up 2-6 or 2-8 through the first uh, eight or 10 games. And so we thought we were going to be the worst team in Major League Soccer. And <laughs> the irony, and still this is applicable today, is that in Major League Soccer, you can change your fortune in a very short amount of time. Now, there are, there are two DC Uniteds in that year that nobody, no, nobody remembers the first DC United, which was just absolutely a car crash. The paradigm change was when Bruce put more responsibility on Marco. We'll get to the importance of Marco Echeverri in a bit. You're in for a treat. But we've come to Washington and are watching a current marquee player putting a real shift for DC. Wayne Rooney does not stop for the 90 minutes, cajoling, moving players about, trying little flicks, and then, listen to this. The fans behind the goal at Audi Field erupt. We are right in the middle of it. We get covered in beer. Seb's tinnitus kicks in as a massive drum is banged repeatedly. It's incredible. It's proper fan culture. An hour before the game, we went to the Screaming Eagles tailgate and then walked to the game and danced with members of the Barra Brava. There's a video somewhere. You're not going to see it. And these fan groups aren't new. They were here before the team even existed. Greg Lalas remains full of admiration. What DC United did in those early years, from bringing in Latin American players to having a fan culture that was really pretty unique for its size and the way that the Barra Brava and the Screaming Eagles and that whole supporter group in DC brought an atmosphere that could rival things, or looked a lot like things around the world and would rival the atmosphere that we have today. They were incredibly credible as a soccer club. They had a fan culture. And the amazing thing was that when they bounced, the stand bounced. It was this entire stand going up and down like this because it was a temporary stand that actually moved. And so it created this incredible visual that I think, you know, that they created themselves. It might have been a new league but it wasn't a new sport. The NASL did fold years before, but it had left pockets of fans raised on Cruyff and Pelé without a real outlet, and they were desperate for it to start. This is Matt Mathia. I was a US national team fan, and just before the 94 World Cup, there was this beginning, starting early motion to begin supporters groups. There were, I don't know, 13 of us, wearing red, yelling, looking like fools, but all of us became friends, and then when they announced the league, all of us were from all over the country, and we all split up, and all of us basically founded the MLS team supporters clubs. So I founded the uh, Screaming Eagles. I want to get people in the stands. I want to get some excitement. But back then, uh, I printed, before the first game, I printed a handful of T-shirts, and uh, I brought some food because I figured people might want to eat and drink something, and I had a tailgate out of the tailgate of my truck. 
And I think we had, I want to say, 20, 21 people. In that first season at the gigantic RFK Stadium, Matt and the Eagles decided not to sit behind the goal. Instead, they sat close to the halfway line so the TV cameras would always be on them. It worked. It worked a treat. I mean, our membership started to go up. Uh, but mostly it was people saw, no matter what the score was, and sometimes the score was not very good, uh, no matter what, there was a bunch of lunatics in midfield just going nuts every single game. And that consistently started to catch on. People started to get the idea. Jeff Agus, who played in front of those incredible fans all season, says that you cannot underestimate the importance of the Screaming Eagles. When we look at the supporters' culture now, I think everything grew from those supporters. And when you talk about a 12th, 12th man or 12th person on the field, they, they certainly were for us when, you know, they, the stands are bouncing up and down. It just gave us a lift. And so I think it was a symbiotic relationship. We couldn't have existed without them. They couldn't have existed without us. With the playoffs wrapped, it was time for the first MLS Cup final between DC United and LA Galaxy. And after a strong first season, the league needed a showpiece game, a game full of drama. And my word, did it get it. It's October the 20th, 1996, at the Foxborough Stadium in Massachusetts. The tail end of Hurricane Lily is wreaking havoc. 50 mile an hour winds, a pitch covered in rain, plunging temperatures. 40 minutes down the road in Boston, the first game of the World Series was canceled. Here's Alexi Lalas, who sang the national anthem. As you have seen, our weather patterns in the east can, uh, can, can fluctuate. And as, uh, as luck would have it, we have a, a nor'easter come through, just get deluged. And I'll never forget, uh, I had rehearsed the national anthem. And then when I actually came to do it, they turned to me and said, listen, um, we can't plug your guitar in. We're going to have to have standalone mics because we're worried that you're going to get electrocuted. So if you would do us a favor, make sure that you or anything that you are, you are touching does not touch the microphones. <laughs> Eric Ronaldo was in the stadium. Of course he was. I remember being there, I remember Alexi sang the national anthem and came back up and he was sitting right next to me soaking wet like a big shaggy dog. It smelled like crap, but it was just, it was about entertainment, but at the end of the day, we, we, we did see a pretty good game. The Galaxy went off like a rocket. Hurtado with a bullet header from a Cienfuegos cross. Go and watch his celebration. He looks like he's sliding in a water park. Using some of that magic in the middle, the header! DC came back into it. Jorge Campos made some fantastic saves. But then, after 56 minutes, Galaxy went 2 0 up. The clock continued to tick. 17 minutes to go. Galaxy have one hand on the cup. And then, Marco Echeverri took over the game. In the stands that day, Matt Mattia. But Marco got that look. Yes. With 17 minutes left, it's really almost hopeless. LA had outplayed us from end to end. Yes. It looked lost. 
And then he got that look. I remember there was a free kick given, and he picked up the ball and walked with it to the spot, and he had this sort of look that was familiar to us, but we hadn't seen it all, all game long. And suddenly it was there. Bruce Arena rolled the dice, bringing on Sean Medved and Tony Sanna. In the 73rd minute, DC United got a free kick way out on the left touchline. Marco Echeverri walks over, his long hair soaked. He drills one to the far post. Tony Sanna jumps. Game continues to swing back and forth. Kobe Jones hits the bar. The puddles are ridiculous. And then DC United get another free kick on the left. You know who's taking it. Echeverry wings one in. Bit of swerve to take it away from Campos. Campos punches, makes a phenomenal reflex save off the rebound but it falls at the feet of the other substitute, Sean Medved. Towards the post, loose in the area, shot by Medved, goes for the goal! We're tied at two! Campos' big asset was his ability to leap. I mean, he's a, he's a little guy, and he could jump like crazy, but uh, he couldn't then. I mean, we outworked them thoroughly in those last 17 minutes, even though we had no right to do so. That's Matt Mattia, and here's Kobe Jones. It, it all just went south, I mean, because it was so simple. 20 minutes with a 2-0 lead, you should be able to hold on to that. Jeff A. Goose says DC never panicked. We just built momentum as we went through, and we were able to, I think, play through the weather challenges and the field challenges, and it was something that was more of an East Coast consideration than a West Coast consideration. So where they come from the sunshine and have always been out in nice conditions, we've been through those types of games before, so we knew really how to manage that, that process. The game goes to overtime. You're probably expecting us to say that you couldn't script it, but of course you could. Someone scripted Star Wars. DC almost scored twice, and then, in the 98th minute, there's a corner. Here's Marco. It's a hell of a header from Eddie Pope. Front post banged right in the top corner. And the first MLS Cup has been won with a golden goal. Nothing left but the crying after that one, as they say. It was, a, it was a difficult one to take, you know. Here is Kobe Jones. I'll always re remember it that in a negative light because obviously you want to win, but I'll remember the whole season and that time as a fantastic time because of what we accomplished. It was a game the season needed and deserved. A Wild West shootout in the driving rain in front of delirious, dissolute and drenched fans. All the hard work, the finding referees, the draft, the combine, the players coming home, the shootouts and even that clock. All of it had been worth it. Soccer fans in America had their sport back and they attracted a load of new ones along the way. Let's talk about the legacy. Let's talk to the lads. Here's Mike Burns. One of the biggest differences for me is that when, when 96 started, right, I'll never forget, this is going to sound strange, but the light bulb went off, it was Halloween. 
and kids were coming to my door dressed as revolution players. And it was the first time I've ever thought, you know what, like, this league might make it. In this part of the world, it was common to have Red Sox players show up, Bruins players show up, show up Patriots players show up, Celtics players show up. But when the re revolution came, I was like, oh my goodness. Now I feel like nobody thinks, is this, is this league going to be around in 24 more years? Is this league going to be around in five more years? No one's asking if MLS is going to survive anymore. The real question is how big we're going to be. That's it. Alexi Lalas continues to spread the gospel. Oftentimes, as American soccer people, we like to kick ourselves in the ass for what we haven't done and haven't accomplished or what we aren't yet. And sometimes we also have to take a step back and pat ourselves on the back. What has happened when it comes to Major League Soccer, what has happened when it comes to just soccer in the United States is unprecedented when you put it up against other sports, other leagues, other cultures around the world. And so, yeah, I take great pride, but I think then I revert back to that pioneer type of mentality where it's never over, it's never done. And it is a constant fight and slog in the best sense, in the most positive sense of the word, because this is, this is what we love, this is what we are. Kobe Jones sees the impact at all levels. I look back to where we started from, practicing in the parking lot, you know, at the Rose Bowl, you know, picking up beer bottles, you know, after the games, you know, to make sure we don't fall down and cut ourselves and, and, and trying to scoot people having picnics, you know, playing Frisbee so we could have a training space. I've seen the youth dynamic change in, in soccer in this country over the past, you know, 20 years, but especially probably over the past five to 10, where you go through neighborhoods from the Beverly Hills to the Baldwin Hills, you know, where you got every, you drive through it. What I see now kids wearing, it's not necessarily the NFL jerseys. More often than not, you'll see a soccer jersey. You see a thirst for the game. I'm very proud that, you know, someday I'll be, I'll be dead and gone. And I like to think that myself and others that you have talked to and a lot of others that you will never talk to have just left a piece in, in terms of all that work that has helped the game and it made it that much better. You know, nowadays when, you know, these, these, these kids grow up and they, they have no ideas of the challenges in the Wild West that it was back then. And I'm happy. That for me is progress. I don't want them to understand or know or even acknowledge or respect it. They're growing up where they have a professionally. They get to see soccer on television. Their national teams uh, are good. Soccer is on the palette and in the landscape of so many different people than it ever was. And that's because of all the work that has come before. And the work continues. MLS has had a roller coaster history since that first season. But when you go there and meet the football community firsthand, from the ex-players to the administrators, the incredible fans from LA to DC and all over, you can't help but fall in love with what they're doing. Get over there and experience it for yourself. It's not going anywhere. giant. Football stories that matter, told by the people who were there. A Spotify original in association with Mundial. The birth of Major League Soccer was created by me, Owen Blackhurst, and Seb White. Executively produced and edited by Tayo Papula. Original music by Harry Harris. Additional production by Andy Hewitt, Tom Griffin, and Tom Glasser. Research and transcription by Max Freeman Mills. Archive assistance by Andrew Tomchak, thanks to Chris Thomas at LA Galaxy, Angel and the lads from the ACB, Chris Hull from DC United, and Matt Mattia, Stephen Eastley, 
Dave Tyella, Jimmy Butler, James Lambert, and all the Screaming Eagles. Thanks to Paul Michael Ochoa from MLS and Adam Kleonsky from the New England Revolution. Thanks to Jonathan Frederick Turton for the photography and to Mike, Eric, Kobe, Joe, Greg, Jeff, Alexi, Grant, and Sunil. Thanks for your time and your stories. Thank you for listening to Giant. New episodes drop every Thursday, exclusively on Spotify. If you've enjoyed Giant, why not check out Football Legends on Spotify? Each episode takes a story from a footballer's autobiography and gloriously dissects it, and it is right up your street. Search for Football Legends on Spotify now.